The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a Chief Compliance Officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox, and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Before we get to John Mellican, a quick word from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode in this month's The Compliance Life. I'm visiting with John Mellican. John, first of all, uh, welcome back. Great, back to be, uh, great to be back with you. So, John, in this episode, uh, you move into the CCO chair. So you transitioned uh, from Bear Stearns over to the American Express. Then you moved to the CCO chair at MX Travel. And I wanted to maybe transition to what was it like moving from a compliance professional in a very, 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 very large corporation to the CCO at a large business unit, but nevertheless a business unit? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a great question. I, I, it really was uh, American Express, uh, as we touched on in the last uh, conversation, you know, was a big and complicated place. And it really was trying to get your agenda to get change driven. And, and, you know, frankly, American Express had a number of things that we needed to change and update at the time. And uh, we had come in with, you know, a, a new head, a global head of AML uh, that was driving a lot of that change, some new uh, folks in compliance and legal that were driving that change. And part of my agenda and, and, and remit as CCO was to drive that change through what was a, a large business, but one that had a lot of different uh, components to it. As we said, you know, I think in the last discussion, there were traveler's checks, there were gift cards, there were money service businesses, there were money remittance businesses. Uh, you know, there, there was a lot going on there that needed, uh, you know, compliance attention. And really what I learned in that and, and, and took away from it was that your ability to, to, to drive that change and to successfully execute what you know your um, management wanted you to do was far more orchestration than execution. Your job was to pick a direction and try to get everybody in that large group of people to play more like uh, you know at least a band, if not a symphony. And I had to think everybody would settle for everybody playing on the same the same song, same tune, same key. Uh, was was where we were going, but it really was an effort to get all those different groups to go in the right direction. And then, as we said before, trying to get all the supporting functions that are absolutely critical to have a successful career in a CCO chair to work with you to get your your work done and to continue to get it done correctly. Um, you know that the the idea of getting it right and then continuing to get it right are often two different conversations. Uh, I've also heard the CCO role uh, described as an educator, and you can be incredibly technically competent on the how to do something, but it may be more important to explain the why to do something, uh, to, to either engage with employees, get a business unit or others uh, subsidiaries invested in the uh, overall scope of your compliance program. I was wondering if you could talk about uh, really communicating with with uh, your team or our 
I guess not the compliance team, but the employees on why you needed to make some of these changes and how it would not only benefit American Express, but it would benefit them as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's a it's a, a really good description of it. I think when when you talk about being you know, an educator, it really goes in all different directions. In some circumstances, you're educating the business on why certain features of a product may be offensive to regulators or may run afoul of regulations. And you need to, them to understand that maybe small changes in the product or its function can save us a lot of time and energy with the regulators later. Sometimes you're educating internal audit that things that you know they see as problematic may not be as problematic as they think they are, and you really have to get them the information to allow them to make the decisions that audit has to do and to memorialize those decisions. You know, you can be talking to regulators the same way and, edu- and trying to educate them in senior management. It really goes in all different directions, including uh, down to your own folks in compliance, and that's the portion of listen, we're doing this in a particular way. We need to do it either better or we need to do it in a slightly different way so that we can get a better result across all of compliance. We need this information in a different format. We need this information you know, in a more timely manner. So yeah, I think that's an exactly right description. It, it, it is a fair amount of education and communication. And the better you can explain things to people, uh, I think the, the, the more success you'll have. And you know, in my career, I think that goes back to, you know, the very beginning at the DA's office where, you know, that was your job was often to explain things in a very matter of fact way, either in a bail application or a hearing or a trial. You had to take sometimes, particularly in financial crimes, uh, very complicated subjects like price manipulation of a security and explain that to, you know, a grand jury uh, that didn't really have a background in it. So, those skill sets, uh, you know, continue to develop, and uh, you know, I think they start early in your career. But uh, you know, becoming a CCO or being put in one of those senior compliance positions, that that's a, a critical skill set and one that you you seem to rely on every single day. John, many of the listeners to this podcast uh, came out of the FCPA or anti-bribery and a corruption compliance world, as I did. And the only time you would deal with a regulator in those situations, if you were under a SEC or DOJ uh, investigation or an enforcement action, uh, financial compliance is a little bit different. But at American Express, did you have to deal with regulators? And uh, if you did, what was sort of that interplay that you would have with them around your compliance programs? Um, yeah, I mean, there was a fair amount of uh, regulatory interaction, particularly uh, when you operate a money service business that's registered in, I think it was 40 some odd states. Each state regulator had the opportunity to come in you know, once a year to examine uh, your operations in their state. So uh, there was you know, a lot of interaction with uh, each of the state regulators on what you did in their state, why you did it what they found to be interesting or potentially suspicious, what products and services they thought might offend, uh, you know, portions of their registration requirements. So if you were offering gift cards or wire services in a state, uh, wire transmission services, that, you know, you'd have to explain how you were doing that, what your control framework was. Uh, Equally, we had, uh, back, this was around 2008, we had, uh, I think, American Express, uh, came under some uh, review by the Fed. Uh, 
because we got access to the Fed window at that time. Uh, not not my world, but you know we we did have a as I recall a couple of interesting meetings where we tried to explain American Express travel related services to a number of uh, senior people at the Fed who were fairly confused uh, by, by what travel related services had to do with the the Federal Reserve. But yeah, there was a fair amount of interaction with the regulators, and it, it's always parts rewarding and parts terrifying. You next moved, John, over to the Bank of Tokyo, and I wanted to ask you, uh, I think this was a move uh, to more traditional AML, and if that's correct, uh, why the move and really how did that help you grow professionally in your kind of AML compliance hat? Yeah, I mean, it was. I I think American Express, uh, you know, uh, as a large organization, you often see a lot of transition, you know, in and out of some of these roles. So it wasn't unusual for people to come and go. Uh, there, some people stay for a tremendously long time. I had an opportunity to join, uh, you know, what, what was and uh, is a very, very fascinating place to work. It's the largest bank in Japan, which is the third largest economy in the world generally. And in their New York office, you sit on uh, effectively the net exports of that bank. So it's a tremendous amount of money piling out of a net export economy like Japan. Uh, through U.S. dollars in New York to the rest of the world for everything from electronics to cars to uh, all sorts of things that they acquire to to, uh, run an economy on an island. So it was a fascinating opportunity and, you know, the opportunity to work very closely uh, with some of the folks in Japan was also enticing, but it was to be the head of AML to have essentially your own interesting shop at a correspondent bank. So, um, you know, that, that, that was the allure of that job was to go back to uh, something very specific inside AML and at a very high level. Did that require trips to Japan at regular basis for you? Uh, it did. Um, and those of you uh, who remember Bank of Tokyo, uh, shortly after I arrived, uh, we, we got into some entanglements with New York State DFS. Uh, Nothing like attracting the attention of home office with a few hundred million dollars in fines uh, from a regulator that they had heretofore had great relationships with. Uh, so they were a little bit taken aback uh, by the size of the, the, the fines that were being levied and the, the requirements around you know, changing the program. Uh, the, the business was great, home office was great, but we did have to make uh, any number of trips over the years uh, to and from Japan, and that you know that is one of the great things about, as you say, a compliance life. Uh, you do, or at least up until now, had the ability to travel extensively and really meet and work with people around the world, and and you know some of some really fond memories of going to Japan and some some really great colleagues there. John, uh, I wonder if we might conclude if you could uh, give us a little tutorial on the Department of New- State of New York Department of Financial Services, the DFS. Uh, I'm not sure many uh, compliance practitioners in the ABC compliance world may even be aware of it, but uh, I've, I've always found it to be one of the, the uh, most unknown yet highly important regulators literally in the world. What's the role of the DFS? How do they relate to the Fed or other financial institution regulators? And uh, what's the sort of impact they have literally on banks across the world? So, uh, again, I'm not sure I'm the best placed person to give a a complete tutorial. I'm sure there are others that are far better placed to do it. But from 
from my experience and my knowledge and intersection with them, uh, New York State Department of Financial Services, which was a combination of New York State Banking and I think the Department of Insurance, and this happened, if I can recall, somewhere around like 2003 or four, uh, if, but that's a guess off the top of my head. Uh, they became the insurance regulator for, or the, the, the overall regulator for insurance and banking in New York. Now, the banking aspect of it goes back a long time. You have, uh, you know, national bank charters, which are, you know, Fed and OCC regulated, and you have state chartered banks. The state chartered banks predominantly are regulated by, at least in New York, New York State and the Fed, and they'll be co-regulated by those two uh, regulators. If you have a New York State bank charter, you fall under that jurisdiction. And the interesting thing about New York State is really – New York City being the center of finance for the world attracts a lot of uh, institutions. So you have places like the Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi that have, at that time, they had a New York State chartered license and that allowed them to operate in New York State, but also allowed them, you know, in, in operating in New York to have access to the New York Fed. And that's where the U.S. dollar accounts all flow through. So Many, if not all, of the foreign banks or the larger foreign banks at some point have had a New York State chartered uh, account and therefore come under New York State regulation. And that's made them an incredibly powerful global regulator from a relatively you know, uh, unique platform of a state regulator. I hope that somewhat answers your question. Uh, it does. And uh, the DFS has been involved in some major anti-corruption uh, cases over the years, uh, tangentially, of course, but uh, nevertheless, it's been interesting to see them step into the world that I plan typically, but uh, uh, your description is great. John, unfortunately, we are now at the end of our time, but I hope our listeners will join us for our fourth and final episode next time, where we talk about your move into the consulting world. But before we leave, John, I wanted to ask uh, if listeners wanted any more information on yourself or the topics, some of the topics we've talked about today, where can they go? Uh, just over to extra.com, and I think you can find everything there. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.